party people welcome back to the kombini pop anime podcast i am your half human half dog feral boyfriend leah and i am your exhausted student who is quite frankly fed up with your shit katarina it's been a while if you haven't been able to tell yes yes it has been quite the time it's nice to be back recording been uh quite we've had a summer we've had our indian summer off and now it's time to get back to work as it were what does that even mean Oh, an Indian summer is literally just when uh, it's unseasonably warm in the fall. So it's like the last vestiges of what summer is. It's desperately hanging on for dear life. I see. So I guess we've had an Indian summer and we've had hurricane season. And now we've had what our state considers, quote, fall. The air is slightly getting cooler. It's kind of nice only in the mornings. I don't feel like I want to die. And yeah, we're back. Here to talk about our favorite thing, or my favorite thing, anime. If you're new here, we are Kumbini Pop, your anime quick stop. Kumbini Pop is an anime and manga review podcast where I know too much about anime. And I think that mangas are a delicious tropical fruit. And I, Leah, explain Japanese culture and seek to explore the thematic elements of the shows and the books we read to Katarina in an effort to make her a weeaboo won't work that's fine let's just talk about some good old japanese cartoons so when we last recorded we had an entire month of spooktober plan you know we were gonna review a lot of scary things lots of spooky japanese lore but uh life got in the way it did it did get in the way very badly but Luckily for you, spooky season is never truly over with Leah and Katarina. So as a result, today we are discussing a millennial anime classic, Inuyasha. And Inuyasha is especially relevant right now because its sequel series, Yashahime, is currently airing. I'm personally a really big fan of Inuyasha, so I've been waiting to do this episode and have a retrospective on the topic. And I'm just... I'm so excited and I'm so happy (laughs) and I hope you can hear it in my voice. (laughs) We will likely be encountering spoilers in this episode and potentially a second episode if we go over time, but we will give a heads up in the show notes if you don't want a several decade old anime spoiled. I won't judge, but I feel like we know where it ends, but... Although, I will say, this, uh, I I did not have this uh, anime spoiled for me. I knew nothing about this except for the general premise going in. So there could be people out there who who just don't know. Exactly. And I'm glad you brought that up because that really brings us to our first point. Katarina, what is your experience with Inuyasha? Like like my childhood experience with it? Like before doing this show? Yeah. Okay. Um, Virtually no experience. I mean, I, I was like everybody who went to Hot Topic. I saw the merch. I saw the shirts. I saw pins. I saw many pins. I I must have had a friend or somebody who watched it, but I didn't. So did you ever watch Adult Swim at all? I think I watched a couple episodes of Robot Chicken, and that was it. Interesting. So you never got to see that one Inuyasha promo that Adult Swim used to play a lot? If I did, I don't remember Okay. I, and maybe that means I didn't, because I, I assume that means it was memorable, because you're like, that one specific promo, because I, I, I... So, listeners, uh, Katarina and I are doing something different today. We're voice chatting, and we're going to be sending each other references so that we both can have a better idea of what we're talking about and have a little bit more of a more engaging, natural chat. I just sent Katarina that one promo, and 
You know the one. Inuyasha! Kagome! Inuyasha! Kagome! Inuyasha! Wow. Um, I don't know what I have witnessed. <laughs> that was, that was an experience. Well, okay. Okay. So that's what you saw at a formative age. Got it. Was that basically your impression of the show going in? Because I feel like that was most people's impression of the show going in. You know, it wasn't because I feel like I didn't even have an impression of the show. I feel like my only impression of the show was that people who watched it were the same kind of people. Not the exact same kind of people, but like they were similar enough to the people who like did Naruto runs in the hallway. What the fuck? This was before that. Well, like, you get what I'm saying? Like, the attitude where, like, there'd be kids at lunch who are like, I'm a half-wolf demon. Don't touch my furry little ears. Grr. I knew a girl who said she was half-wolf. Maybe that was it. Maybe that was it. Maybe she watched in Yasha. And she was all like, you know, I'm possessed. Oh my god, that's what it was. <laughs> <laughs> I thought she was making up some cool Harry Potter bullshit. I was like, hey, that's cool. You got an imagination. I appreciate that. Wait, I had a werewolf phase where I was like, yeah, sure, I'm, I'm in fifth grade, I'm a werewolf, sure, sure, why not? Uh, no, this girl was like, yeah, I have a demon in me, and I'm also a wolf, uh, so everything makes sense now. I've unlocked something. You you had a Koga fangirl in your midst. <laughs> I did. I must, I must have, uh, without my knowledge. Okay. <laughs> Suddenly things take, uh, make a little bit more sense <laughs> in your life. Suddenly a light, a light has illuminated my past. Uh, okay. <laughs> I, I, like, I guess I just had that assumption about people who watched Inuyasha was that they were the kids in middle school who pretended that they were, like, part animal and, like, acted a little bit weird. Maybe they bit people. No, this girl bit herself and other people. What? I don't know. That, yeah. That's, that's absolutely why. <laughs> so, I went to a strange middle school. Oh. I want to say cringe culture is dead, but that's, that's kind of bad. I hope she's doing okay now. I do too. You know what? I do too. I also hope she's doing okay. Um, I don't know. I haven't talked to anybody in middle school since I left middle school. So <laughs> I hope y'all are doing great. Uh, please don't listen to this. Well, I'm gonna take a moment to just say, I love Inuyasha. <laughs> I love this fucking show. And this series is super important to me because this is the show that got me into anime. Like I remember it like it was yesterday. When I saw my first episode of Inuyasha, it was a cool day in fall of 2002. And I was in third grade and my cousin was sleeping over and we were staying up really late and I decided to go like take a shower. And when I got out, what was on the TV? But Inuyasha. And not just any episode, but the episode with Yura of the hair. So it was very early on in the series and I fell in love. I loved it. Inuyasha, like, I was a really big fangirl. I owned everything. I'm talking backpacks, pins, patches, plushies. I had an Inuyasha plushie and a Sashomaru plushie. T-shirts, wall scroll. Oh. My parents literally imported goods so that I could have figures. I had a Japanese Inuyasha calendar. I had bootleg copies of the films, like, as soon as they were released in Japan. Hell, in fourth grade, my Halloween costume, my mother had me commissioned a Kikyo costume because I fucking love Inuyasha. That's really, that's really cute. Inuyasha was like one of the first mangas I started collecting. And I was so young that my parents would look through it. And when they encountered nudity, they decided 
to censor it. So all of my Inuyasha mangas have drawn on bikinis on the naked ladies. And then it got to the oh. point because I was such a good kid that I started censoring them myself. <laughs> so like right now, um, I'm going to show you volume five where Kikyo is resurrected. Okay. I did that myself. I ruined these. Why? Oh, oh I know why. But like, <laughs> that's kind of wholesome. It's... It's silly. It's it's very much like, oh, this is like a, what what you do when you're a kid and you're trying to be a good child. I get it. I respect it. It's cute. I did it myself. And so I still have oh. I still have um all the original Viz manga that I collected as a kid. I remember when they were coming out uh, issue by issue and I would run to the bookstore to collect them and they hold like a very special place in my heart. Like I really love this show. And like I even have this little pin, not pin, a patch that I've had forever that I use now on my luggage to identify it because who else is going to have an Inuyasha patch on their weeb-ass luggage? Just me. Other weebs, though. Yeah, but this this patch is, like, no longer made. <laughs> like, it's not in circulation. You're not going to find it. Oh, uh, okay. Well, well, then. And I still have my old Inuyasha messenger bags. I have two. Okay, so I just had a great thought. What if... This, this is a great setting. Picture this. You're in an airport. Fuck off. You're going to pick up your luggage. And it's coming down the carousel. And it's like, you know, black ordinary luggage. And the only thing that differentiates it is the is this patch. And you go to reach for it. But so does somebody else. And your hands touch. And you go, no, no, excuse me, person. This is my bag. Look at the uh, uh, the classic vintage Inuyasha pin or patch that I have painstakingly glued onto my luggage. And that person goes, no. That's my Inuyasha patch that went out of circulation in 2010. Fukai Mori plays on blast <laughs> in the background. <laughs> da, na, 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 na. <laughs> Just like on fucking blast. Which, by the way, Fukai Mori is the best ending song. You knew when you heard that at 11 o'clock, it was that fucking time. Your little fourth grade heart was breaking. You had a tear shedding down your face. God, I love that fucking song. I'm gonna listen to it. But yeah, so those are my feelings on Inuyasha. And I just, this show is literally intertwined with my life in a way that I feel like it's my feudal fairy tale. Oh, well that's, that's kind of beautiful. That's cute. I like that. I know I'm not alone in that feeling because Inuyasha seems to hold that place for a lot of early 2000s American weebs specifically because of the time period it came to the States the fact that there wasn't a lot of anime available at that time. And then I know now like there are kids, Gen Z kids who literally say like Inuyasha was a show of my childhood. And I'm like, fuck you. If I was in third grade, you were like a fucking toddler. How is that a show of your childhood? In what way? I mean, there are some Gen Z. Uh, I mean, we were like, we were early 90s. Gen Z starts at like late 90s, so technically- If I was in third grade and 1996 is the cutoff, they were in kindergarten. Yeah, you're right. Yeah, the more I think- yeah, wow. What were kindergartners doing watching Inuyasha? Nothing. They weren't watching it, I'll tell you that right now. <laughs> they were ogling, going, ah, oh, wolf, dog boy. <laughs> That's it, they're pointing. They had the same Christmas experience of 2002 that I had where they saw Kikyo's boobs and they went, I'm gay. <laughs> I'm not even kidding. That's my bisexual awakening fun fact. I remember that day like it was yesterday as well. 
my cousin was also over oh. and he wanted to go in and watch the show. And when I saw she was naked, I ran and slammed the door and only I could watch it. Amazing. Just wanted to share that little tidbit if you wanted to learn about Leah's life. That's beautiful. I appreciate this. So Inuyasha, despite being a shonen manga and anime series, is actually incredibly popular with women, which was unusual for the time it was written and the time that it came out. Because it began serialization as a manga in the late 90s, and then it came, it became an anime at the beginning of the 2000s, and then it came to the States. And before that, you know, we didn't have a lot. We did have, like, Mobile Suit Gundam, we did have Dragon Ball Z, we did have Sailor Moon, we did have Pokemon. But again, like, Inuyasha is very much supposed to be an action series where the romance is kind of the secondary plot but either way there's something about Inuyasha that really resonates with women I don't know what it is it might be all the hot guys why are you making a face <laughs> I don't I don't know maybe it's because like like I started watching it now versus I think like if I watched it the same as you watched it I would agree with you me looking at them now for the first time I was like oh my god all these stupid teenagers oh that's true <laughs> So I think I think definitely like if you're a teenager or like a preteen watching this, then yeah, of course you're you're gonna be enamored. Like I was, I'm I'm aware enough to be like, oh, if I saw this at the appropriate age, I I might have been like, oh wow, this is a show. Watching it, approaching it now, I'm just like, oh my god, they're all so stupid. I don't think they're I don't think they're all stupid, but I see I. No, but you you know, it's 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 not stupid like in general. It's like a teenage that teenage mindset where it's like, oh, wow, just communicate for five minutes without going, couple I do not have time for you. <laughs> In your women ways. She's just like, well, let me just go back to, well then, and ignore you, because that'll solve the problem. I have feelings about that, but we'll talk about that when we get to the actual <laughs> plot. Um, not feelings about what you said specifically. I have feelings about that in the show. But... I genuinely believe part of the reason why Inuyasha became so popular with women, despite it being a shonen manga series, is not because of the, the sexy guys. It's literally because of um, Takahashi Rumiko-sensei, or Rumiko Takahashi, the creator of the the series. She is an excellent writer and an amazing artist, and her love for her work really translates into everything that she does. And Inuyasha is kind of the, one of the final buildups of her career so for people who don't know uh rumiko takahashi was born in nigita japan on october 10th 1957 so she's a libra which means she likes aesthetics just fun facts <laughs> during her years at japan's women's university she enrolled at the gekiga sunjuku a manga school that was known for the demanding nature of its founder it was a big deal that she went to the school for two years takahashi worked directly under that founder who always stressed the importance of drafting interesting characters in one stories. As a result, you see that Rumiko's characters are very progressive for the time that they were written in because you have to remember that she started creating manga in the 70s. Wow. A lot of her work features prominent female characters whose motivations aren't written solely for love or romance and their dialogues don't focus exclusively on their male partner. So for example, you have characters like Akane Tendo from Rama One Half, whose major focus is becoming a master martial artist. And like literally her whole character arc is I don't like boys. Okay. Which okay. some people like to theorize means other things. 
I see. So that's okay. See, Akane is the one with the short blue hair, and then yeah. her sister is Nabiki. And Nabiki's another character who's not written for love or romance. She's like a scheming person who likes to make money, and everything is kind of like a business opportunity for her. And the, by the time that Ranma came out, like that was unheard of. And now these kinds of character tropes are somewhat the norm. Or we can look at Kayoko Otanashi from Maison Ikoku. She is definitely a more romance oriented character, but. She's the epitome of that bitch who needs a break and works way too fucking hard because she's widowed. She's in charge of a boarding house. She's just tired and elegant. Even though that is a romance story, Kyoko's character does not revolve solely around like, will someone love me? And then you have like, characters like those in Inuyasha, like Kagome, Sange, and Kikyo, who have varied motivations. With Kikyo, in my opinion, being one of her most complex characters as someone who has read all of Rumiko's works. I would say like Kikyo definitely stands out as someone who is potentially like the pinnacle of her writing. Interesting. Okay. I have no other frame of reference. Uh, I've obviously never read or watched any of her other works, so I will take you at your word. Mm -hmm. So she also likes to write characters that aren't explicitly black or white. They usually have dueling motives. And I think Inuyasha himself is a very good example of this dynamic because the whole show, he's wrestling with his desire to become this powerful demon, with his desire to protect and preserve the humans in his life specifically. Despite the fact that the demons in Inuyasha are meant to be evil, that's still a core part of who he is. And then that comes out in his struggles with the new moon and when he becomes full demon for a period of time. Other times that he has these varied, not good, not evil motivations is when he wrestles with his emotional struggles for his feelings for Kikyo because he feels responsible for her death. But also she kind of killed him for 50 years. So he constantly engages in these selfish actions for the sake of Kikyo over anyone else despite their weird, complicated, and upsetting history, like, Inuyasha's kind of a fuckboy sometimes, but we still love him because he's the protagonist. Pause. Yeah, Inuyasha's a fuckboy. Kind of? <laughs> that man went back and forth at least 20 times. Oh, Kagome, I love you. I would die for you. But Kikyo, I love you. I would die for you. I choose you or do I? And it just went back and In forth. In all fairness, Inuyasha kind of did die for Kikyo. Yeah. I'm not wrong. Eh, I know. I'm just saying he is he is a fuckboy. Like, there's no kind of about it. Anyway. Fair. <laughs> you you may continue. But you see these, these kinds of dynamics continuously in her work. Inuyasha is not the only male protagonist that she made a fuckboy. Just go look at Udise Yatsura and Ataru. And Ranma. Ranma's also a fuckboy. But whatever, it's just not an episode about those two. So, Rumiko first rose to prominence with her smash 1980s hit Udise Yatsura, which is a manga and anime series focusing on an alien named Lum and her dysfunctional relationship with her darling Ataru. And I am sure that you have seen Udise Yatsura because it is extremely famous and very influential in the anime community. And I think you you recognize Lum as an important character without me giving any additional details. Yeah, she's she's got a very recognizable silhouette shape appearance. Yeah, I've seen her before. For those who don't know or 
want to downplay the importance of Urusei Yatsura, it's on par with Astro Boy for its notoriety and influence in the anime community because there's even a life-size bronze statue of Lump outside of the Ikebukuro line in Nirima, Tokyo, Japan, okay? In the same little plaza as an Astro Boy statue. And if that doesn't tell you that this is an important series, I don't know what it what does. This is really cute. It's like if the Mickey Mouse statue in Disney World with Walt leading him by the hand had boobs. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> no, but really, it's, it's, it's really cool that, that that statue exists. That's cool. Rumiko Takahashi's works are often grounded in a sense of reality, even if they are in these fictional and magical worlds, because she writes about things that she knows and understands well be it her own personal life or Japanese cu culture. For example, in her early career, she lived in a 150 square foot apartment with two assistants. That apartment was small, messy, and crowded with art supplies, manga, and empty ramen cartons. She often slept in a closet due to the size constraints. And this was the inspiration for Mizani Koku, which follows Yusaku Godai, a young man in his early 20s, who is a student that failed his college entrance exam and now has to wait a year before he can take it again. So he has to just kind of wait out that year in this cheap boarding house. And he's constantly being harassed by the insane tenants. But the day he decides to leave, he meets a gorgeous young widow and falls in love with her and then hijinks ensue. And that was all d directly inspired by her miserable living conditions. Uh, as as they do, of course. Uh, <laughs> wow, that sounds like uh, like if Charles Dickens had hijinks that were silly and funny. True. <laughs> Whereas uh, Charles Dickens drew from the misery around his life, Rumiko Takahashi tried to make it into a joke. Her experiences in her early 20s were also the basis for writing Urusei Yatsura, which is another just like silly, wacky series. And basically Urusei Yatsura and Meizani Koku are her 20s personified. She begins to explore Japanese and other Asian attitudes towards mythologies in her subsequent series. So we get Mermaid Saga, One Pound Gospel, Rama One Half, and Inuyasha. Let's first talk about Mermaid Saga really quick. Mermaid Saga is a series that follows a pair of immortals who seek to find an end to their everlasting life and die in peace. It's very different. Oh, oh, okay, sure. Yuta is a 500-year-old immortal who wanders across Japan for centuries before he finds Mana, a young immortal, who he takes as his companion. They meet others who want their powers, and then it results in demonic creatures called Lost Souls. It's fucking scary. Oh my god, it's anime Highlander. <laughs> yeah. Actually, <laughs> I never thought of it that way. There can be only one. Well, they don't even want one. They want to. They want to be dead. That's fair. They're yeah. like, yeah. being immortal sucks. Let's die. Sure. Then she also goes to create One Pound Gospel, which was also very novel for the time because it deals with Christianity because Japanese culture is dominated by Buddhism and Shintoism. This is a series that's literally about commitments because Angela is a novice nun preparing to take her vows. The most important being the vow of celibacy. But she's tempted by a young boxer named Kosaku Hatanaka who has his own temptation. He constantly battles his weight problems to stay within his proper weight class, all while trying to winning the heart of this unattainable woman. But again, this is exploring kind of Asian attitudes towards Christianity is very heavy theme in this series. Interesting. And then we have Rama One Half, the comic written for bisexuals. <laughs> oh no. So, Rama One Half, if you don't know, which I feel like we'll eventually do an episode because I really think you'll enjoy Rama. 
follows Rama Saotome, a headstrong young martial artist who has recently returned to Japan from a long training trip in China. He's engaged to Akane Tendo, the girl with the short hair I showed you earlier, against his will. And then his embarrassing secret is revealed. When splashed with cold water, he becomes a girl. And the series is all about like gender issues and kind of about sexuality and just like the dynamics between men and women. It's a comedy and it's it's so great. It's just, it's amazing. Everyone's gay. Everyone's gay in Rama, except Moose. Moose is straight. With a name like Moose, how could you not be? <laughs> I don't have any other response to that. She sounds like a very interesting writer. She sounds like she tackles a lot of really interesting topics. I have to hand it to her. I feel like she never repeats any kind of story twice. Everything exists in a very separate realm. Again, you see these continuous themes in her work where the characters have all these varied kind of neutral motivations. Everyone is very different and they were very unique for the time because again you have to remember her comics are coming out in the 70s and the 80s. And Rama, just as a fun note for your frame of reference because you don't know, Rama is so notorious and also very famous that it's a heavily parodied show and there's even numerous references to Rama one half and Robot Chicken. Like they have more than one sketch. And they have an entire Rama one half parody sketch in one season where like the nerd character gets splashed with cold water and becomes a girl. Oh, wow. Yeah, it's definitely like a thing. So now we have to we fast forward into time and we get to the star of the hour, Inuyasha. And Inuyasha was a major change in the way that she presented most of her mainstream works. For starters, it was much darker and decidedly non-comedic when compared to her works previously. Aside from Mermaid Saga, which I think is arguably darker than Inuyasha just because the whole show is like, I want to die. But Inuyasha as a whole has a very foreboding atmosphere. It's harder to tell in the anime, but it's very easy to tell in the manga that it's meant to be dark and serious. For those of you who don't know, even though you're listening to this episode, I'm going to tell you quickly what Inuyasha is about. So, Inuyasha deals with the reawakening of a half-dog demon named Inuyasha, who must come to terms with the death of the woman he loves, who he believes betrayed him 50 years earlier. Her future reincarnation, a 15-year-old girl named Kagome, appears in feudal Japan. This is the catalyst for essentially a demon war, where all these demons are fighting over this item called the Shikon Jewel that will grant the owner basically any wish that they want. How'd I do? Pretty good. That I think that basically sums it up. Like, if it's, if this was the Spark Notes version of it, then yeah, that's it. Anything you'd like to add that you think the show is about? General themes, probably making your own destiny, forging your own path, not relying on the sins of your past or predestiny that determines like what your end result is going to be. Making your own future kind of a thing. I think that was a very big aspect of it. Uh, but I would agree, basically, you, you summed up the plot pretty well. And then would you consider Inuyasha a dark show? Oh, dark compared to her stuff? Sure. I mean, none of her other works really dealt with demons. Uh, Everything that you've told me is like, oh, it's fun, it's just hijinks, it's, you know, oh, I've I've gotten wet, now I'm a girl. (laughs) Or uh, I'm an alien, or, you know, I'm I'm a, a cute workaholic widow. I guess in that aspect, it deals with a darker material. But I didn't get the sense that it was super dark. I guess I guess I'm ruined because I've I've seen a lot of things that are darker than Inuyasha. So I'm like, yeah, it's okay. It's it's more like a fun fantasy, you know. 
I wouldn't consider it super dark. It deals with some dark elements, but I don't know if it, the show itself is dark. Mm-hmm. All right, I think that's fair. That's kind of why I wanted to pick your brain about it. I think it has a lot of dark elements. I think when it was translated into an anime, it definitely became a lot more visually appealing and vibrant because the manga definitely takes advantage of the black and white tones and the inking to create a sense of foreboding. So in that respect, I would agree. I do think the anime is not really dark, just dark adjacent, like Curse the Cowardly Dog almost. I would say even less so than that. I would I would give Courage more credit than that, but that show traumatized me and I watched one episode and never again. And that's because you didn't watch Inuyasha as a child. <laughs> that's because I didn't watch Inuyasha. Is that fair? <laughs> sure. I don't, I don't know. I mean, I read other things that I thought were scarier than Courage, but I don't know. I still think Inuyasha's not that dark. Anyway, we're, we're getting ahead of ourselves. Go on. Continue. Okay. I also think part of the reason why Inuyasha is meant to be seen as this dark series is because it takes place during the Sengoku period of Japan, which, for a Western perspective, that's essentially like the wild, wild west of Japanese history. Yes. So the Sengoku period translates to the Warring States period, which is just this time of social upheaval, political intrigue, and near constant military conflict. This was roughly from the middle of the 15th century to the beginning of the 17th century. I don't know how much you remember about the Japanese shogunate from when we took AP World History together in high school. We've all seen the viral video, History of Japan. We all know a little bit about the Japanese shogunate. (laughs) My knowledge is spotty here and there. Fill me in, fill me in. The cliff notes, for those of you who don't know, is although the Ashikaga shogunate which the shogunate is the ruling class, had retained the structure of their headquarters and instituted a warrior government based on the same social and economic rights and obligations that had existed in Japan since the 1200s. The shogunate still failed to win the loyalty of many daimyo or feudal landowners, especially those whose domains were far from Kyoto, which at the time Kyoto was the capital of Japan. Are you following? Yep. As trade with China grew, the economy developed, and the use of money became widespread as markets and commercial cities appeared. So this, combined with developments in agriculture and small-scale trading, led to the desire for greater local autonomy throughout all the levels of the Japanese social hierarchy. And as a result, as early as the beginning of the 15th century, suffering and misery caused by natural disasters like earthquakes and famines triggered armed uprisings by farmers weary of debt and taxes. So, does this suddenly make sense for the context of the show? Oh yeah, I kind of knew a little bit about this, so I I was like, oh yes, this is where we are. Okay, cool. That's why there's so many farms and nice local people in the show, as opposed to focusing on, say, a bunch of daimyos or a bunch of, like, rogue samurai wandering around. Like, it, it, actually, it's kind of nice if you think about it. She's focusing on the common man. I don't really think she portrays the common man in a particularly nice light throughout the series because this setting of war, conflict, and violence kind of demonstrates why a lot of the human characters they meet are selfish scumbags. Yeah, but it's nice to see more of them being selfish scumbags than seeing a bunch of like rich, like kingly uh, daimyos being scumbags. You know, I don't necessarily want to see a bunch of shoguns being selfish or whatever. We get it. That story's been told. It's time to see a bunch of farmers who are dicks, you know? <laughs> it's time for some diversity. <laughs> yeah, essentially every village they go to is a cookie-cutter, like, feudal-era village where there may or may not be an actual, like, 
daimyo present because we don't really see a lot of feudal landowners but we do see all of the poor farmers and they're all very unique and individualistic because at this time they're all very separated from the local government and that's also why they're always so suspicious every time these people show up because they all want their own local autonomy which like you know what i respect i get it but that's why they're always just like who are you what the fuck are you doing here get away besides the fact that like there's an obvious demon in their midst that obviously complicates things but it gives context to why even in the first episode, as soon as Kaede appears and like Kagome wanders into the village, they're like, who are you? Are you a spy? What are you doing? We're just a poor village. And this same time period also provides things like the various Buddhist monasteries that we see throughout the show and the purpose of Moroku's characters. Because we do also see in some of the larger towns, semi-autonomous temple towns that are essentially just being protected by a bunch of Buddhist monks. It was just very interesting to see how all of these elements go together and play a very important role in the series. That's good. I'm glad you touched on Moroku's character with the army of monk thing, because when I first started watching this, I was going, why is, what's the warrior monk thing? Okay, so thank you for pre, uh, pre-anticipating, no, not pre-anticipating, but you get it. You, you got where I, you knew where I was going with this. I anticipated that a lot of people who weren't familiar with Japanese history would wonder why Moroku's character was a thing because essentially, especially in his first appearance, he's like an assassin for hire. Or really, he's more just like a wanderer that kind of does whatever he wants, but people will pay him for like odd jobs. And that's why. That is the historical basis for that because that was a thing that Buddhist monks would do if they weren't specifically linked to a temple town. So the relevance of the Sengoku period goes even farther than just the setting of the story and giving context for what the characters are doing. To reiterate, the Sengoku period was from 1467 to 1615, give or take, and was kickstarted literally by a war. These wars and the natural disasters that the Japanese people were experiencing at the time played a toll on the Japanese psyche. During this time period, religion's influence was simultaneously feared, disregarded, and then embraced by Japanese putative leaders. In the Sengoku period, you have three religions coexisting with various levels of acceptance or skepticism. So you have Shintoism, which is the oldest religion in Japan, Buddhism, and Confucianism imported from China. And you see all three of these elements interacting to varying degrees in Inuyasha. As already touched upon, we see a lot of Buddhist elements with Moroku and the temple towns. We also see a lot of Buddhist and Confucius philosophies when we go to different cities and we see their temples. But Shintoism is obviously the biggest influence on Inuyasha because Kagome's family comes from a Shinto shrine. They show the modern aspects of it. Kikyo and Kaede are Shinto priestesses. There's a lot of intertwining of the faiths that you see going on. Part of the reason why this is so important is the animistic nature of Shintoism. So do you know what Shintoism is? Yes, yes I do. What is it? Well, it's it's the beliefs, it's basically that everything in nature has an energy, a spirit. For lack of a better word, I guess, when they, when they like pray or when they meditate or things like that, it's acknowledging the essence of the river or the sun or the trees. It's, it's religion in nature, which is why, coincidentally, when Portugal started trying to colonize Japan and started trying to bring Christianity into Japan, 
they had such a hard time reconciling Christ with Shintoism and the, the Portuguese priests were all like, okay, well, God's like the sun. And there was this big thing where they were like, oh, okay, so he's he's the sun. He's the ball up there. Okay, great. And there was like this really big like disconnect. And it was very, there were very interesting uh, things about this. I wrote a paper about this. <laughs> You're exactly right. It's a polytheistic religion that worships deities known as Kami. And the Kami are essentially spirits of everything in the world. So just like you said, from the river outside of your house to the entire sky, to the specific clouds in it, to the color blue of the sky, everything simultaneously is governed or exists as a spirit that can cause either great blessings or destruction. And this belief in Kamis is especially important during this time period because it leads to the belief in yokai. Some might say that yokai and Kami are two sides of the same coin. I am one of those people. So, do you know what a yokai is? Yes, I do. Yokai are essentially evil Kami. When a spirit causes anything from mischief to death, it's considered a yokai. So during this time period, people were suffering from natural disasters, earthquakes, and floods. Those were caused by yokai. However, kami are also the gods of all these things and could cause the same level of damage if you didn't appease them. So in that way, kami and yokai are kind of the same thing. And yokai is usually used to refer to a kami when they turn evil. When a kami goes, quote, rogue or evil, its damage is often attributed to a yokai. So in that sense, it, it varies based on perspective. So for example, there are cities in Japan where kappa are revered as local deities and they celebrate the kappa, but there are other areas of Japan where kappa are seen as nuisances and evil. This interaction between what's a kami, what's a yokai, in this way, you have a setting that these kinds of monsters are going to be rampant. And Inuyasha takes that in a very literal sense. For more information on this dynamic, if you're interested in learning more on the difference between kami and yokai and their, influ their varying influences in Japanese media, I recommend watching the YouTube channel Gaijin Goomba because he goes into way more detail than I ever could with years worth of episodes. Fun fact, shout out to Gaijin Goomba. So all of this is background to understand that in the Sengoku period, we also saw the earliest depictions of yokai, meaning a scroll featuring solely yokai, because yokai as a concept existed before the Sengoku period, called The Night Parade of a Hundred Demons, painted by Tosa Mitsunobu. This is an incredibly famous work of art, and it influenced all yokai lore and artistic interpretations created after it. So as yokai rose to artistic prominence, many individuals would later repaint, expand, and create replicas of the Night Parade of a Hundred Demons. With that mindset, it makes so much sense that Rumiko Takahashi, when creating a period drama sent, set up in the Sengoku period, it was going to involve yokai because that concept is already proliferating in the popular concept, conscious. So she is putting that in a very literal sense. So in the same way that Tosa Mitsunobu indicated in his scroll that yokai could arise from everyday objects and everyday activities, the creatures in Inuyasha coexist in this space with humans. While they are evil for the most part and must be dealt with, no one really bats an eye at the sheer number of them. Nobody's like, wow, we sure got a, sure got a lot of demons in this, in this area of Japan. No one really bats an eye when the spirits shift from the mundane to the more humanoid and the more monstrous. They're kind of just there, unless they're actively being attacked by the yokai, then they do bat an eye, but that's just because then you get rid of them. And this entire philosophy has very real roots in Japanese culture. And it's not something you really think about when you're watching Inuyasha because you're just like, I'm enjoying this fantasy setting for what it is. 
but it's all history and all metaphor and all important. <laughs> I think it's funny that it's just so that it is approached from like a mundane perspective. Like Charlotte, we got we got fox demons in the barn again. Get the gun. <laughs> we got we gotta clear them out before they eat the chicken. <laughs> but like you're not wrong. But, I mean, I, I know. I, I It's really interesting. I guess, what else could you do if they're everywhere? You know? Except learn to live with them. I feel like it's a natural, logical progression to mm-hmm. take. Absolutely. It's just very interesting how that's kind of how Shintoism works in everyday life. You just live with the kami and the yokai. I like that. I like that. Yeah, and Inuyasha is very much like a literal interpretation of that. I don't know if Ramiko Takahashi meant that on purpose or if that's just kind of what the end product ended up being, but it is a very easy and interesting way of how to explain animism, Shintoism, kami, and yokai to an average person, especially a Western person that grows up without any concept of how any of this is. You could just show them Inuyasha and you'd be like, okay, well, you understand like very entry level Shintoism, very entry level, very surface level, but you can if you just watch Inuyasha. Maybe follow up. Yes. Maybe follow up with your own reading. But you, you get the premise. You get the initial. Yeah. <laughs> we see numerous examples throughout Inuyasha of Rumiko Takahashi either directly adapting existing Japanese mythos or modifying existing mythos for her characters. For some direct one-to-one relations, we have characters like Shippo who represent the Kitsune, which are the mischievous fox demons. And much like in traditional lore, although he may take a human form, he is able to transform, and Shippo is generally kind of like a hindrance. He's not evil, and none of the Kitsune that they show are particularly evil in the show, even in some of the filler. They're usually more taken advantage of, but they're also referred to in passing by villagers as a nuisance, which is just very true of what Kitsune yokai are like. And then we also have characters like Hachimone, who is a tanuki, and he's He's not in the show a lot, definitely more in the beginning with Moroku. He matches essentially all famous interpretations of a tanuki. He's a drunk, not very reliable, especially with money. I don't need to go any deeper than that. If you've played Animal Crossing and you know who Tom Nook is, you know what a tanuki is. Yo. (laughs) I'm not wrong. No, I know. know. If you don't know by now, you won't ever. (laughs) Basically. And then there's characters like Hilala, who's a Nekomara, which refers to a cat demon with mystical abilities. And they usually can shapeshift and they can become these either small mischievous cats or these large, scary tiger-like interpretations based on some of the, the artwork that I was seeing doing my research. And you know that Kirara is a Nekomara specifically because she has forked tails. That is the telltale sign, as opposed to a Bakemono, which is just a regular cat demon. So we move on to Rumiko's interpretations of modified yokai, and then we get to like the star of the show himself. Inuyasha and his brother Seshomaru are example of dog yokai that were created by Rumiko. So both characters are essentially a form of Inugami, which typically in traditional interpretations look like ordinary dogs in order to blend in with society. And their true forms are desiccated mummified dog heads <laughs> dressed in the ceremonial trappings. And these dog heads are usually preserved in a shrine somewhere, and they serve an owner. It makes sense that in a story surrounding people, that the Inugami would resemble humans to better blend in in society, because this is a world where yokai are just everywhere. And then a key defining feature of Inugami is that they're loyal to one person or one family only. 
unless they are seriously mistreated, they will remain loyal forever. And you see this both from Inuyasha and Sashobu's perspective, because Inuyasha is fiercely loyal to Kagome and his friends, at least in the concept of friends. We're not even going to talk about the relationship context. That's a whole other bag of worms. At least in the context of his loyalty to his friends, Inuyasha is fiercely loyal, like will never abandon them and do anything to harm them. Meanwhile, Sashomaru is distant and ambivalent to humans, mostly due to his resentment towards his father and his favoritism towards Inuyasha. But when he eventually adopts Rin, you see him be loyal only to her. He doesn't care about any other humans except Rin. And this, these loyalties and these levels of resentment are rooted in Inugami lore. So yeah, these attitudes of Inuyasha and Sashomaru are very much <laughs> rooted in actual lore. And then you have characters like Koga and his pack, who are examples of modified Okuri Inu, which is essentially wolf yokai. And the key features of Okuri Inu are residing in mountains and forests and being carnivorous and eating humans. Besides the fact that Koga's family uh, live in the, the mountains, just like their counterparts, they make reference to being carnivorous and eating humans in the past. So like, as much as I love Koga and his crew, like they're not exactly saints. And, fun fact, in modern Japanese, the word okuri okami also applies to predatory men who go after young women pretending to be sweet and helpful but with ulterior motives. <laughs> that word comes from this yokai. And despite the fact I love Koga, he kind of fits that description. I mean, yeah, he tries to quote-unquote marry Kagome like 10 minutes after they meet. I mean, oh my god. Oh, good to know that the, um, that the big bad wolf trope exists <laughs> across the world. I'm happy about this. This is a unifying moment. Um, he's kind of both. A literal Okuri Inu and a metaphorical Okuri Okami. And then another demon that I wanted to mention that's modified is a popular one that people like to cosplay, but she is very short in the series. One of the first demons that Inuyasha and Kagome fight is Yura of the Hair. And she is described as, as a demon born from a comb used to comb the hair of the dead. And while I could only find one tale of a cursed comb in Japanese, Yura still demonstrates the idea that yokai can occur in everyday objects. This concept is specifically known as Tsukumogami. And she's just less sil silly in appearance than a typical Tsukumogami because she is very seriously a threat and she takes a human form despite the fact that her core essence is a comb inside of a skull. Which was very cool of uh, Takahashi to create. Honestly, that was one of the best examples of like modified lore she could have made, in my opinion. I really like Yura. I think she has a really good design and I think she's very interesting. And something I noticed too, because I was recently rewatching Inuyasha in preparation for this episode, is that Especially at the beginning, when there's less emphasis on the big bad, you see a lot of her exploring and modifying these traditional yokai concepts in fun and interesting ways. Because like we could go on and on and on with characters and why they have a basis in different types of yokai lore. Hell, that's a, a book series. That's a whole academic study. That would take years. There's no way in a podcast we could cover everything. You just gotta read Inuyasha for yourself and then just do a little bit of research. You'll be surprised by the connections you could make to burying Japanese mythos. Okay, but what about the Shikan Julia? Let's talk about the Shikan Jewel, which is the focus of the whole series. Can we talk about the Julia? I just really want to talk about the Julia. I'm ready to talk about 
fucking troll, yeah. Alright. Alright. <laughs> I'll talk about the Shikong duel. <laughs> I'll talk about it, okay? So, there's some lore basis for that, too. Uh, I didn't think there was, but the Shikong jewel is kind of another example of the Tsukumogami with the ability to be either a kami or yokai, depending on the wishes and the intentions of the holder. What really seems to be some of the inspiration for the Shikong jewel is the Chintamani of Hindu and Buddhist traditions, which makes sense given the time period within which Inuyasha takes place because of the pillar creation of Buddhism in Japan. First, Chintamani share a visual similarity to the Shikon jewel because these are round jewels that are highly revered in Buddhism. In every depiction, they are a perfect circle, just like the Shikon jewel, which is very important just to lay a groundwork visual similarity. Then, specifically in Buddhism, the Chintamani are a wish-granting stone that lead to enlightenment. And it's also treated as a philosopher's stone of sort, which is exactly the purpose the Shikon jewel serves, ultimately granting someone's wish. Because the Shikon jewel itself is neither good or evil, it's neutral, its sole focus is to stay alive in a way. But it has that philosopher's stone aspect where it's this super powerful, let's call it an entity, if you will, because of things that happen in the series. But it's a sacred relic that's supposed to be protected and purified and you don't want it to go into the wrong hands because, like I said, it is an ultimate wish-granting stone that will reflect the intentions of the holder. And then besides the Chintamani, which I think share the most in common with what the Shikon jewel is and serves in Inuyasha, it also seems to take partial inspiration from mystical gems in Japanese mythology specifically. Notably the Magatama. You see the Magatama throughout Inuyasha. That is the necklace that Inuyasha wears. That is a necklace made of Magatama beads. Those curved shaped beads that look almost like fangs. And although they differ oh. in appearance from the Shikon jewel, they are intrinsically linked to the creation of all deities after Amaterasu bit one and spit it out. And it provides the basis for the importance of even a single bead, a single gem, a single jewel in Japanese mythology. So in that way, it's kind of the blending of these two philosophies. Sacred jewelry is very cool. Uh, I will say that it's interesting when you were talking about how the jewel is neither, how the Chintamani is neither good nor evil because it's it's all about the intention of the holder. Uh, I think it goes back to how Kagame has to purify all of the shards every time she picks it up. So like that makes sense where it's it's just a thing where, where it really does depend on like the intention of whoever has it at the time. So that's cool. Yeah, the Shikon jewel as an item seems to just reflect like what is in the holder's innermost heart, which is why when all the demons get a hold of it, it immediately turns evil. But there are people who will have a Shikon jewel shard embedded in them that aren't inherently evil, like Kohaku, for example, who are still twisted by its nature. And it's just a very interesting way that these two differing types of mythologies merge together to present this MacGuffin of sorts in Inuyasha. <laughs> MacGuffin of sorts. I like that. And honestly, we could go on and on and on and on and on regarding all the direct references or modified references. Like we said, it would be a book. It would be a series of books. You know what it is? It's 56 yeah. volumes called Inuyasha, Feudal Fairy Doom. <laughs> Am I wrong? It's 56 volumes. Oh, you didn't know? <laughs> no, 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 I did not know. Oh, wow. You know what? Rumiko Takahashi, you know, 
I salute you. I tip my hat. Yup! <laughs> it's 56 volumes! My manga. No. <laughs> Rude. <laughs> no, but, but, but really, though. Uh, that's very, very impressive. 56 volumes is a lot. And, like, we aren't even gonna get into the modern-day Tokyo references that appear throughout the series. Like, Whack Donald's. <laughs> and or the interpretations of Shintoism with Kagome's family. Like, how it's implied her grandfather is essentially a fraud priest. <laughs> even though Kagome herself has very real spiritual powers and lives on very real spiritually enriched land. It was kind of great, honestly. It was wonderful. <laughs> but the overall point is, Rumiko Takahashi clearly put a lot of thought and effort into the cultural references that she made throughout the series. There is no way that Inuyasha, as a series, could exist without any conscious effort of this on her part. And, you know, that's why in 2018, Rumiko Takahashi was inducted into the Will Eisner Comic Awards Hall of Fame. And in January 2019, she won the Grand Prix de la Vie des Anglais, French, Frenchness. Dangoulême. Yeah, Dangoulême. She won. Dangoulême. She won a French award in 2019, becoming the second woman and second manga artist to win the award in an international comic festival. She's a decorated comic individual and i think she needs to be praised for that you know she sold over two million copies of her combined works which just goes to show wow. how much she's loved yeah wow i've never seen 200 yeah. million of anything <laughs> it's I, hard work man and and quite honestly like dedication hard work talent it's it i'm very happy that that she's been honored you know at and her works are so loved that even her fans have created like their own interconnected comic universe called Rumic World. Oh. Yeah, and it got so popular that there were even like Rumic World shorts made that you can see on YouTube and stuff. Nice. And these fans, you know, collect all the information about her comics, including the influence and the lore on Rumic World fan sites. So, you know, shout out to all of them because they made researching her very easy. <laughs> they, ha I like that. they had a lot of encyclopedic information. So thank you, Rumic World fans and individuals collecting information. It was great. That concludes our part one on Inuyasha. Woohoo! So much. We're not even talking about the actual show yet. It's like, it's like JoJo's all over again. <laughs> it's like JoJo PTSD continues. Uh, this was easier to digest than JoJo, honestly. <laughs> this was I fine. Would <laughs> <laughs> On next week's episode, we will talk about the actual show, the characters, and our overall thoughts regarding why Inuyasha is just a fun watch for everyone. Right? You agree? It's not fun. It, it was it was a lot of fun. I'll give it that. It, it's very good. I do I do actually recommend it to people, especially those of you who are who are new to it. I think this is very much a good jump. This is a good spring. Should we should we have started um, with this and not JoJo's? Should did do you regret me pushing you into the defend uh, and not going to like I, something soft or getting out to it? 
I don't regret it because I get to hold it over your head now forever. And also, I get to tell everyone that I'm a part skipper and get bottles thrown at my head, which is a true story. Oh yeah, that's a very true story. <laughs> I've had I've had people throw pillows at me since the bottle incident. I've had people get enraged and then lecture me all about it, and I've just had to sit there going, "This is my life now." <laughs> You're only pushing me to stay a part skipper. You are not convincing. Look at what you're doing. <laughs> if you do this to her, we won't be able to get her to watch Stone Ocean when the anime comes out. And Stone Ocean's amazing. She's gonna love Jolene. Stop. Let her be. But on that note, listeners, do you think there's anything we missed in this episode? Did you guys catch any references or anything more in Inuyasha that you think we should have talked about or you want to discuss with us let us know in the comments on wordpress or youtube and after this episode we should be on spotify correct because spotify has that sweet sweet five episode benchmark which we just passed Woo-hoo. uh but we're also on uh stitcher Podbean, uh apple Podcasts. we are everywhere and anywhere podcasts can be found so Social links will be in the description of the episode, or you can find us at KumbiniPopPod at Twitter.com. This has been your host, Leah. And this has been Katerina. Bye! Bye!